Okay, so the date for this one, 5051 as well. These letters, we think, are written pretty close to one another, so around the same time, pretty tied in, 50 or 51 AD. Um, the situation here is um, just three big things, I think, if I could break this up into categories. God's justice. God's justice. Jesus' return. And the church's perseverance. God's justice, Jesus' return, and the church's perseverance. Um, so like with First Thessalonians, I'll go through these themes, and then we'll kind of see them play out in the text. First is the man of lawlessness. Um, we'll see that in chapter 2. That'll be fun. Man of lawlessness. Second is the importance of work. I know I'm probably moving a little fast here. So man of lawlessness, the importance of work. Yeah, and the patron-client system. Um, and then lastly, reminders of former teaching. Reminders of former teaching. So there's a few places where Paul's like, remember what I said, remember. Because remember, he's been with them. Then he wrote them a letter. Not long after, he's writing them another letter. So there's a few places where it's like, don't forget what I already told you. You know, I've already given you what you need. Hang on to it. So man of lawlessness, the importance of work, reminders of former teaching. Okay. We ready? Okay. Uh, the beginning. So similarly to First Thessalonians, this is um, kind of like a prayer, a section, a prayer, a section, a prayer, a section. So um, Second Thessalonians 1, 1 to 3, opening prayer. Uh, it's going to be pretty similar to the first one. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. You remember back in First Thessalonians, he said, like, my prayer for you is that your love for one another would grow and overflow. And then now he says, I've heard, you're loving each other more. Great job. You know, that's pretty cool. I and mean, then he's able to see it. So that's the opening. Second Thessalonians 1, um, I would just, again, big category called God's justice. We talked about those three things. God's justice. Um, I want to read some of this to you because I think it's so powerful. Some of that stuff you can read and be like, well, that's intense. But think of it through the lens of a persecuted person who's longing for Jesus to come back, who's trying to be faithful, is living in the minority, is so hard, and they hear something like that. And they're being like systemically crushed, increasingly so, by this you know, beast on a rampage to trample them, to use Daniel's language. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what they're facing. And then he says things like, um, verse 4, Therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. Wait, wait, wait. Wouldn't we think when we're being persecuted and things are unfair, that why would a good God allow this? Paul says, yeah, all of that is evidence that God is going to judge rightly. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. That's crazy. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And then this is his next prayer. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling. Do you remember in Acts, there's one time when they were all beaten, and then they left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of the name. Do you remember that? 
This, all this language is right in there. You be worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so this section I just call pastoral prayer. There's a few of these throughout Second Thessalonians, if you're filling in that one. But some of that language is really intense, right? Like you're being persecuted, God's going to come and burn those people up at fire. Like, that's a lot. I don't think Paul would say, so sit around plotting their demise. You know, Paul would, would urge people all over the place, like, so love one another, be holy, be bold and ready to speak up about your faith in Jesus. Take every opportunity to tell somebody about the hope that you have. Like, this isn't just Paul saying, so hate all those people. I think it is him saying, I know you're standing up in persecution and it's hard. God is going to make this right. Your job in the meantime is not to try to make it right yourself. It's God's job. Your job in the meantime is be holy, be faithful, persevere, and trust that because we know how it will end, eschatology, we know how to live in light of that. He's coming back. So what do I have to be afraid of? Do your worst. You kill me. Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So do your worst. If you kill me, I get to go be with him. And someday he's going to make it right. So that's the attitude of a Christian. It doesn't turn us into hateful people, but I think it does turn us into hopeful people that don't need to be worried or angry about it. God's going to fix it. Not my job to fix it. My job to persevere and be holy. Does that make sense? So strong language, but again, I think it, especially if you think in terms of people being systemically crushed by this, Paul's saying, God is going to judge them. He will win. He will be right. He'll prove himself right. That's big. Yeah, Haley. Um, what would you, like if someone asked you what's the difference between perfection and holiness, Yeah. Like, how would you describe that to them? Like living to please God, but that's not being perfect, but it is being holy? Yeah. I think holiness is um, more about like, other words I would use for holiness is like to be set apart or to be pure or purified. So that, like I could drink purified water. That doesn't mean it's perfect. I don't think that's a, you know, maybe a perfect analogy. Um, but that's a little different. You know, if something is purified and set apart for a specific purpose, that's different than being perfect. The other thing is at least um, the implications of those words, the way we typically use them, would be that if I'm striving to be perfect, that's something I do. But if I'm holy, that's something God makes me. I think that's the biggest difference. Um, yeah, if I can look and say, I did that perfectly, then I, like even that phrase conveys it, I did that perfectly. But if it's like, I'm holy, I cannot do that. I'm incapable. But only he can make me holy. That's the biggest difference, I would say. And even then, holiness, like once he does make me holy, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. Because I'm already imperfect. And yet he still claims that I can be holy. So to be perfect would be like totally without blemish ever. But to be holy is God has um, changed the way, changed your standing now, I guess. Um, maybe a way to say it. I don't know if that's quite precise. But does that make sense, Haley? It's mm-hmm. a good question. Okay. Um, so that's chapter one. Now let's get into chapter two. More who kind of stay. <laughs> chapter 2. Um, I will call on chapter 2, Jesus' return. He's going to talk a little bit about that here. But I think this is a little bit less about Jesus' return than we tend to think it is. So let me, let me preface this a little bit because I think it will help you read it with clear eyes. This is, again, the passage in Scripture, the only one, I would suggest, that is about the Antichrist, capital A, the figure who is 
the Antichrist figure, okay? There's not other places where it's like this one figure will be the one who does it. This is the place really where that's built. And then if, if this passage builds that image, then you kind of flesh it out from other places. Similar to 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the rapture passage. And if so, then you kind of piece all these other things onto it. But was 1 Thessalonians a rapture passage? I don't think it is. So, if this is the one, if this is the one passage where this whole image and figure is built up, let's read it and see what it has to say to us. Keep in mind Daniel seven. Keep in mind what Paul has already taught them in First Thessalonians four. Keep in mind the persecution they're facing systemically from the government, and let's see what he has to say concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Remember that. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy. Even if this is about anything you fill in, Paul leads it with, don't be unsettled or alarmed, which would be a great warning, even if we're not going to totally undo what people believe about the end times. Whatever you believe about it, don't be unsettled or alarmed. That would be pretty life-changing for some people who get caught up in end time stuff, don't you think? So don't be alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So clearly they've been told by somebody that Paul says or Paul taught somewhere that the day of the Lord already came and you missed it. Which was their fear back in 1 Thessalonians 4, remember? What if people who are dead miss it because Jesus comes and they're already dead? And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not, if they're dead, you'll still be fine. And then the thing they're being told now is it's actually already happened and you all missed it too. What? And Paul's like, that's not, I never said that. That's not true. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come. Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, that's big, weird stuff. Again, this passage is going to be, we're not going to be able to totally get our hands around it, but I want to help you at least get, get started. So I would say, um, like with a lot of these things, we read that and are like, whoa, some future crazy thing is going to happen. Who's it going to be? People would have heard this and been like, we've seen that happen several times. Like that's, that's like word for word what the Roman emperors do and did all the time. There was a Roman general called Pompey who, you know, before Jesus went into the temple and wanted to like build a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. So sets himself up to be worshipped in the place where it claims to be God. That's already happened. It's continuing to happen. I've shown you guys a picture outside of the Parthenon in Athens where Augustus set up an altar. It's like, you can keep worshipping this place as long as at the entrance everybody worships me first. Like, that's what the Caesars were all about. So when Paul says, like, you know the end isn't going to come until all this stuff happens. It's just going to keep happening. So I think he's just trying to say, like, just because things are bad now doesn't mean you missed it. Or just because something else changed now, or there's a different emperor, or a different... You didn't miss it. All of this stuff is going on all the time. This is going to keep happening. You'll know when it comes, I think is what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Just because people, are, it seems like, maybe pointing to this sign, this sign, this sign. He's like, no, no, no. It's always happening. This this crazy power, these beasts, these authority figures, these boastful, powerful presents who try to be God have always been here. Don't be alarmed. I, you know, does that make sense? I think that's what he's getting at. Now still, 
is there a certain man of lawlessness? I don't know. I, like, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. But there are some details in this passage that are, it's a weird passage. It's a weird passage. Look at verse 5. This is the, kind of the, the conclusion of all this from him. Don't you remember, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know, this is where it gets weird again, what's holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracle signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they'll believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Okay, so again admittedly difficult passage, weird passage. So Paul's saying this man of lawlessness, whatever it is, whenever it is, is now currently kind of being restrained, even though the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, right? Because it's kind of aligned with Satan and Satan's doing his thing. Does that make sense as a summary of that section? So that's what Paul's saying, some weird stuff. A couple things. Remember earlier when he said, I tried to get to you, but Satan stopped me. So was that a weird, crazy thing? Or was it him saying like, Satan is at work stirring up persecution and making things difficult and doing all kinds of stuff, and so I couldn't get there. I wish I could, so I sent Timothy, right? So I think at least we need to keep both of those passages together. If he's saying the work of Satan is already happening so that lawlessness is already working, well, what does that mean? It means persecution. It means evil in the world. It means cultural deception. All those things it's always meant when Scripture refers to it. Does that make sense? Could it also mean some other... Bigger things Satan's doing? Sure. But I want to take it in line with other things he's already said. Because I think that makes the most sense. Is that, are you following so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider um, is that it says, uh, where is it? Uh, verse 7. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But then the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. So, weird verse. Again, I admit, all of this stuff is a little weird. Let's try to reconstruct it. Some people will take this as like, in the future, whenever the Antichrist figure comes, because we're pointing ahead, that it's being restrained for a time because either the church is active, but once all the Christians are gone, by First Thessalonians 4, they won't be there to hold it back anymore. Because again, you, like, if you take this passage and you build onto it. So if that's the case, the church won't be there to restrain this anymore, and it's just going to run rampant. I understand where that thought would come from but I understand where that thought would come from um, you have a question? I can't read lips so I don't know what you said about <laughs> I said I disagree but I understand where that thought would come from um, so that's one some people would say that like the archangel Michael is restraining it I suppose maybe like if you're trying to figure out how that's going to work maybe the text does not say that I don't know maybe some people would say the gospel has now come in Jesus and so as long as the gospel is actively evangelizing in the world the gospel is holding back the power of Satan to fully unleash itself on the world. I would say, I kind of understand that, maybe. But again, I would say, talk to people who live in Iran. Is the gospel restraining the power of Satan to do its worst work? I don't think so. Talk to, um, some of you guys met Shankar in, uh, from India, who, who was here. I think he would say, ah, I think Satan's pretty active. Like, I don't, I don't think me preaching the gospel just stops it. You know, it's like, 
other places in the world who aren't just like sitting in luxury imagining these things, I think have different perspective about what it means that Satan's power is at work wreaking havoc on the world. So I think we need to have a global perspective of that. Exactly what is happening here, I don't know. But what I would say if I'm trying to piece together the whole of biblical thought into this passage instead of take this passage and then piece biblical thought onto it, I would say I think Paul is saying you're worried that you miss the end of the world. I'm telling you, you know that all of this evil is rampant all around you all the time. So if you're looking for a specific way it's going to happen, you're probably going to be fruitlessly searching because it's happening all the time. Is Satan fully unleashed on the world? No, because God's at work and God's in control. Could it get worse? Yeah. Which is tough to think about, especially for these people. It could get worse than that. But, but Paul's point is uh, in verse 8. So when is it coming? I don't really know. Will it get worse? Maybe it could. Like the church is advancing, the gospel is advancing, it's holding some things at bay. You know, I don't know exactly where this is going to happen. Will there be a certain specific figure that comes and deceives everybody? I don't know. I think more of what he's saying is you're going to know when it's happening. You don't need to panic about when. You don't need to panic about how. You're not going to miss it. But here's what you need to know in verse 8. When, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So are things going to get really bad? Yeah. Things are going to continue. I think Paul would say, continue to be bad. And let's just say it gets worse. Do you remember what I told you back in my last letter? That you're going to hear that he's coming and we're going to get to escort him into town? Then guess what? No matter how powerful the government thinks they are, no matter how powerful evil thinks it is, no matter how powerful Satan's gotten, he's going to blow the breath of his mouth when he walks to town. And there's not even a battle. So is it going to be bad? Yeah. Is it already bad? Yeah, it's really bad. Can the gospel keep doing work because it's more powerful than Satan? Yes. And when he comes to town, and it's over. So don't worry. You're not going to miss it. You'll know when he comes, and we'll win. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So still some questions. It's a weird passage. I, I think in this whole kind of conversation, for me, this is the hardest passage to understand or to figure out every detail and where does this fit and what does he mean? I think this is the hardest one. Um, the theologian Augustine from way, way back when said, I don't know what this means. Like he's, it's confusing. It's a tough one. So doing my best to put it in the context of everything else that makes more sense than this, I think that's the thrust of it for Paul. Is he's saying it's already bad. It's going to continue to be bad. It might even get worse, but you don't have to worry because we're on the winning side and you won't miss it. He's coming to town and he'll win. So you'll know when it comes. I think that's what he's saying when I piece it all together in context. Does that make sense to you guys? Mm-hmm. Questions, thoughts, confusion about that? Again, admittedly, there are, it's not all sewn up neatly, but that's what I think. Yeah? I don't even know what I want to ask, but I think, <laughs> so you said this is the only place where capital A Antichrist is in the Bible. But, but it's, it's not, not there. I know. Fascinating, huh? <laughs> so... So that word, that word is used in First John, and maybe in Second John as well. But here's the interesting thing: when it's there, it's plural. And he says, "You're waiting for antichrists. There's a bunch of antichrists already. 
they're basically like false teachers and people who oppose the gospel and people you need to be faithful to persevere through. So keep going. That's kind of the thrust of it in those passages. Then we take that word to, to pair with this and say this person maybe is that idea with a capital A, which I understand. I understand the connection of those ideas, but it is interesting that the biblical writers never do that. It's really interesting to me in particular that John, when he wrote Revelation, never did that. If this is the thing that Jesus was revealing to him in the Revelation, don't you think he would have known these passages and pieced them together? Mm -hmm. Maybe not, but it's interesting to me that he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good observation. So do you think the Antichrist is not a real thing, or is this maybe? I don't think so. But those are the places where it gets combined together Mm -hmm. into an idea. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes, Lacey. <laughs> Can you talk about verse 11 a little bit? Like the language underneath the, like God sending the powerful delusion yeah. so that they will believe the lie. Yeah. <laughs> so I, just my thinking on that is to kind of compare that back to um, something Jesus said, and he was quoting Isaiah, when he said, like, when the disciples were like, why do you say such confusing stuff? And he's like, I'm going to speak in parables so that people can't understand everything I say. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, so you're purposely not making it clear so that people then won't understand you and won't accept you and then they're punished? It's like, that's a tough like logic path to follow. But I think more what Jesus meant is like, not everybody's going to get it, but this is true. This is just the truth. If people aren't going to get it, if people are going to be deceived by this whole Pax Romana stuff and by the Caesar is Lord stuff, like all of that is such a delusion, they're deceived. And they're trying to kill you for what you believe. God's going to make it right someday. I think is the thrust of what he's getting at. It is hard to take the purpose thing. Like, God made this happen. Um, it's po- I think it is within God's prerogative as the divine being and sovereign over everything that he could do that. Um, and just say, I am chosen to let these people be evil because it's going to prove this point that I'll win someday. And you're going to be faithful in spite of it. I think that if he wanted to do that, he could do that. Um, what makes more sense to me based on the way his character, un- bigger picture, informs little statements like this, including hardening Pharaoh's heart, including Jesus in the parables, including this, is less that God is picking and choosing, like, I'm hardening your heart so that I have to kill you, Pharaoh. I think it's more of him saying, like, this is the situation my people are in, this is the situation now because people have acted this way, because Pharaoh has acted this way, because Pharaoh had opportunity and after opportunity to repent. In order for this situation to end up being God's deliverance of his people, what it's going to take is for Pharaoh to do this. And I think God would say, I didn't just on a whim take this good person and shift him into evil. I took this person who had dug himself into an evil rut and let it go that way, and I'm going to get my way anyways. Um, which is a, obviously a very, very big conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think that is similar in principle to Jesus saying, I'm going to preach parables and not everybody's going to get. And I don't think that's Jesus saying, I'm going to be so hard to understand that I get to punish people. I think that's Jesus saying, this is what I have. If you're not going to get it, your heart's mm-hmm. deceived and you've chosen to not open your eyes to the truth. I think it's probably similar here. But Paul's speaking to these people who so desperately need, like, hope and encouragement and to believe that God's on their side 
I think he's saying like, this is why God's allowing you to undergo what you're undergoing because he's going to make it right one day. I don't, I don't think that's Paul saying God has written this script so that he can condemn the Romans. I think it's saying God has taken what we've given him and said, this is how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And so Paul writing to persecuted people saying, take courage. God's on your side. He's got a plan to fix it. He's going to punish those people who are evil. I think that's what more the thrust of it. So they've been deluded by the lies of the world. They've been deluded by the, you know, the allure of power, all that stuff. And God's let that happen because he's going to fix it someday. It still leaves some questions. But that's my ramble around it a little bit. Does that help? Um, I, I'm bored with what you're saying. I think yeah. I'm struggling more with the, like, this that God sending the powerful delusion, which, I mean, there might just not be an answer, so that's fine. But it's connected to the end times passage in Matthew 24. Like, that's what my notes connected to. Which, what does that say? Um, it's just about, like, Jesus talking about the end and like nations mm-hmm. will rage and rise yeah, and all yeah, these yeah. kind of things and people who are wicked will follow the ways of wickedness yeah so connecting those two pieces together this just feels like a different statement to me than like pharaoh's heart being like he is how he is sure i'm not gonna miraculously intervene him in order to make something else happen yeah, yeah, yeah. because this is the way that yep. he's chosen which, like, I think blindness, darkness, like, all those things make sense to me. Yeah. This one just seems like a different type of thing in the context of, like, this weird passage. Like, what do you mean? Like, we're ca- like God's casting a delusion so that yeah. um, people will be condemned and not believe the truth because they delighted in wickedness. Like, I, like that just doesn't seem exactly the same thing, but also it just be like... I get that. No, I get that. Um, some of it is just difficult. But, but I understand what you're saying. Maybe a, another good parallel that kind of shines light on this and how it works is in Romans uh, early Romans 1 maybe mm-hmm. where it says like God gave them over to their shameful lusts mm-hmm. so it's like so like did he craft up this magic trick to deceive everybody so he could punish them or is it like your love and power your love and evil your love and corruption your love and mm-hmm. sexual sin I'm going to give you over to that so are Paul saying like if God is sovereign over everything, it's like he's allowing this to... They're so deceived that they think what they're doing is good and they think what they're doing is right. God's going to give them over to that. He allowed this whole thing to be to happen so that... And then we're going to be right at the end of it. I think there's maybe similarity there. It's still not easy. Those are the passages that would combine to do it. And taking the Matthew 24 one where it's like nations are going to rage and people plot in vain... I think maybe there's similarity there to like there's this lawless evil that the world just perpetuates and nations are going to rise up and think they have all the answers and another beast is going to come out of the sea and try to deceive everybody and God is saying fine you guys do what you're going to do you've been so deceived by by almost like um, misusing the good gifts of the world that God made you know, whatever, pleasure, leadership, etc., all perverted into evil. Be deluded. I'm going to win someday. I don't know. It still is hard. Again, that's my rambling around it, but not a perfect answer. Yeah? Well, in my Bible, it says that it can also be translated as, like, an activity of error, and then it shoots me over to Romans 1, where it talks yeah. about how the people in their own sinfulness, yeah. they decided to give up God. 
And yeah. so God gave them over to their sin. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, it sounds like God placed them within their sin, but it was kind of in equal translation of what you were saying, that it's just like God let them along in that path, which is kind of an interesting, but I don't know, it, it's in those two frames, it's just like, did God give them an activity of error to participate in, or did they choose that, and he allowed that? It's a continuum, Like, yeah. he put, he presented it in front of them, and he was just like, what you gonna choose? Yeah. And so, maybe... Yeah, I think that's the big question. Yeah. Good questions. Difficult passage. One of the weirdest, hardest ones. Okay. Verses 16 and 17. Um, Or, did I say 16 and 17? Yeah, I did. Um, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So again, another pastoral prayer. Um, for him to just kind of wrap this up. All of that, all the big questions. Persevere, hold on to your hope, be encouraged, be strong, good word, good deeds. That's what we're calling you to. Um, by the way, look up at verse 15, just right above that, because it hits on a theme we mentioned earlier. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold of the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So that's him saying, like, I've told you some stuff. Don't forget that, too, you know, in light of this. One thing I want to say just real fast um, that word teachings in verse 15, I don't know if your translations say anything different. I have a footnote that says, or traditions, um, which I think is like, yeah, fine. Um, sometimes people who are either exploring or have been taught or have grown up Catholic will take that to say, see, tradition has authority. So all the tradition of the Catholic Church then um, has authority equal with Scripture, um, which I think is just a significant misuse of that verse. I think tradition matters, and I'm not opposed to, you know, being aware of what's been taught before. But for one, Paul here specifically, I think, is referring to other scripture, is one. For another, he's, he's writing pre the existence of church councils, etc. So, like, scripture itself is kind of set, and he's like, remember the things we taught you before that are also scripture? So I think to take that as a way to say... Things like what the Pope says now is equally authoritative with Scripture. I think it's just a significant misuse of this verse. But that's the kind of jump that could get made. And also, I think being aware of tradition and church fathers and church history is really important. And we should be more aware of it than we are. But it's not the same as Scripture. Um, so I just think it's important to know where that verse is. Because I've been in conversations with people where they're like, see? See? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's good to be aware. Okay, chapter 3, the church's perseverance. Or what was for 2, 16, 17? Pastoral prayer. That's also the last one, so you can go ahead and get ahead if you want to. So the church's perseverance in chapter 3. Um, yeah, 3 verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Another good bottom line from chapter 2. Whatever chapter 2 means, God is faithful, he's going to protect you from evil. Choose the right side. (laughs) Whatever else it means, you want to be on his side. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do the things we command. 
May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. This next section is important. Both of the Thessalonians, Thessalonian letters hint at this a little bit, but I think it's worth um, getting to. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Strong words from Brother Paul. Yeah, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's an interesting mix of things, but I think it's really important for us. If you're going to live with people who are claiming to be Jesus followers, but just blatantly disobey, then Paul's like, don't, like, don't have patience, don't hang out with them. Don't spend time with them. That's ridiculous. But they're not your enemy. Be willing to warn them. But I do think it's interesting that he's like, don't associate with them in order that he may feel ashamed. It's, especially in our world where it's like, shame is the biggest evil you could ever imply to somebody which is good i don't want to shame people but it's interesting that paul's like if they're shaming the name of jesus and bringing dishonor on our whole community and distracting everybody and leading you into evil then i if they're embarrassed isn't that worth it isn't it interesting so again i i'm not saying like just be mean to everybody because he follows that up with they're not your enemy just warn them but that's the stakes here like, if the stakes are, there's an evil one on the prowl trying to deceive everybody so that they'll be destroyed, then we don't have time for people who are deceitful and lying and not taking this seriously. We don't have time for that. Warn them. Don't let them ruin the community. That's a big deal, isn't it? It's a really big deal. I need to take seriously. Let's talk about the work thing. That's why I read this whole thing to start. So warn those who are idle. If anybody doesn't work, they shouldn't eat, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a couple things I think at play here. For one, I think that's just good advice. Like, be hard workers, have a legit work ethic. Do your job, earn your money, you know, that kind of stuff. I think matters in general. There's two things I think in, probably in Paul's minds here and in the minds of the people specific to the community. One would be this group of people seems really interested in the coming of Jesus, right? When is he coming? How, how are we going to know? What do we do about that? So there's been a lot of speculation, which I think is, there's probably at least some truth to that maybe people in this community were so convinced he was coming and he was coming soon. I hate my job. I'm basically a slave. I'm miserable and don't make anything. Why would I keep doing that? He's coming any day. I'm just going to wait for him to come. And then Paul's just like, no, that's not what, the, that's not what I meant. Like, keep doing your job. Be a hard worker. You're gonna, your family's going to take forever. And who knows when he's coming? Keep doing your job. So I think that's part one. Part two is, and it was on the front of your thing, the patron-client system. So that was a general um, system. Not, not 100% of people fit into this, but a lot in the ancient world, there would be, and, and in the modern world, there's not things too dissimilar from this. But basically, a really, really wealthy estate owner kind of makes income by renting out parts of their farm or parts of their estate to people who would work it for them, and then they would have to give them some of the money. Does that make sense? So you would, the patron who owns all the land and all the property and all the wealth makes an agreement with a client whose job it is to work the land or whatever, work the cattle, sell it or whatever you do to make money. And a portion of that goes to the patron who sits around and stays wealthy and has a great social life. 
and the client works hard and earns all that. So that system is a pretty common ancient way of being, pretty common way of being um, that was, has interesting overtones for our world. Just think about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I think part of what Paul has in mind here is, is could be one of these two things. Either the patron who's just like living it up and not really working, and Paul's like, hey, we're not going to do that. Like find it, make yourself useful. You know, don't just sit around and live for your pleasure. It's not how we're going to be. Um, so I think that's part of it. It could also be um, like clients who want to either exploit their whole freedom in Christ. So I'm liberated from my, you know, my job. That Paul speaks to it like slaves submit to your masters. You know, he has language for that in other of his letters. So that could be the other piece of it. It's like, yeah, you're free, and this relationship should change, but you got to do your job because your family's not going to eat. So you know, so I think all those things are kind of at play here with Paul warning this culture. You don't just get to take what I'm saying and extrapolate it into this scenario where you get to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You need to take what I'm saying, let it impact your holiness, let it impact your faithfulness, let it impact your gospel witness, and then be a good citizen, be a good person, be a functioning member of society. I think it's kind of what he's getting at. Does that all make sense? Mm-hmm. In Second Thessalonians? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he's got a closing prayer at the end. Or a pastoral prayer. Whatever you want to fill it in. You go for it. Okay. Questions, thoughts? Am I right? Okay. Um, good day.